Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, we are once again talking about the war in Sudan. I'm speaking with Reem Abbas. Uh, Reem was actually one of our very first guests on this podcast when we launched it several years ago. Reem is a Sudanese writer and researcher and is currently a fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. Reem, thanks so much for coming back on. Thanks, Alan, for having me back on the show. We're very grateful to be speaking with you today. Uh, I know you've had a month from hell, I suppose you could say, uh, as a as a lot of Sudanese have. You're speaking to us now from Cairo. First of all, wh- when did you arrive in Egypt and, and how did you get there? Uh, last week, a few days ago. So we were in Khartoum for about three weeks. So um, when we decided to make the journey, uh, because of my parents and my dad's health situation, we had to be very careful because we knew it's a long journey. I also had a problem where I, I still don't really have my passport. My passport was at an embassy. I'm one of those people. So I also had to think about, you know, having my own passport, renewing it. So I also had this dilemma going on. Um, we, we made the journey very slowly. So we went to a few places. We would stay the night, you know, just to make sure that we're well rested. And then we made the journey to Halfa in a northern state. And from there, uh, we made the journey to Egypt. I think by the time we arrived, it was different in the sense that there were like less people there. So it wasn't the kind of journey where we would stay there like three, four days. We we finished everything and entered Egypt in about uh, just a few hours. Uh, it's also an interesting journey because everyone is just people are leaving for different reasons, you know, and everyone is... People were very anxious. You know, we all left behind their houses. You know, some of us have been looted. Others have been not. So um, it's uh, it's the worst journey I've ever taken, actually. And and what was your reception like in, in Egypt? What, what was it like to, to be at that border with 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 no passport? Yeah, so so I um, there was there was some leniency. So I went to Halfa and then I renewed my old passport. So it's expired, but they renewed it. And then I was allowed to get into Egypt. So I felt that this is definitely like a humanitarian case. I think for me, it was, I was coming with a lot of mixed feelings because, you know, we all, of course, you know, my family and I, we really did not want to leave, but we had some reasons for leaving. But also I felt that once I enter Egypt, I'm stuck there because I don't really, like, I have a password that they renewed for a few months, but then... I can't really go anywhere else, right? So I felt that, am I going to be stuck? Am I going to be, become stateless? What if I never recover my passport? But also it's interesting because because we arrived like like quite late, like later than other people. So we, um, we like, you know, there was like the Egyptian Red Cross, you know, there were like extra toilets, Save the Children was like, you know, giving people food. So it was interesting, right, to feel like, you know, you have like officially become a refugee, right? Because... Everyone crossing would get uh, like a package, you know, like a meal, uh, you know, some snacks, you know, some water and so on. And um, and yeah, so it was interesting to have this reception. And I kept thinking about the people that made the journey in the first few days who were really just left without like food and, and, and water for like days. And it just really uh, it was very painful for me to think about them. And tell us more about this this passport situation. You're not the only Sudanese who found themselves without a passport because they submitted their passport to a foreign embassy in Khartoum for a visa. 
the New York Times recently reported that the American embassy actually shredded people's passports. Um, but I understand you were able to locate your passport, uh, thankfully. Can you can you describe that story? Yes. So the war broke out on the 15th of April. On the 13th of April, I had an appointment at the Spanish embassy. I was going to like, you know, Spain for some things. And uh, basically, um, you know, so when the war broke out, I it, it took me about a week to write to the embassy because I, I also felt that this could end soon. So I was just kind of on standby, just waiting to see how things turn out. So um, a, a week later, I wrote to the embassy, there was no response. And then I started like connecting with different people. And of course, you know, their priority at the time was safety to like evacuate their staff members. I understand. And actually, I felt that I was I felt better knowing that at least the Spanish embassy did not shred our passports, uh, like, you know, unlike other embassies. So a few day, a few days after the evacuation, they had someone in Port Sudan. I found out through someone and they're just kind of waiting out, you know, to see what's happening. I saw until, until someone sent me a message or sorry, I saw a message on Twitter saying that the Spanish embassy was broken into and it was looted. And I just I was I was just, I just I didn't know to do. I was like, OK, am I ever, ever going to get my passport again? Because because the thing is, in Sudan, I mean, everything is so centralized. And I think this is one of the, the, the things that need to change. But then all the printing of passports, you can get a passport out of out of uh, state, out of Khartoum, but then it gets printed in Khartoum. So it was going to be, going to be impossible for me to get another passport uh, for uh, some time. So, um, so yeah, so I basically started, you know, like, um, uh, my, I asked my friend, you know, who's in Sudan to send the message to this person to find out what's happening. And I was just kind of waiting. And then I was added to a WhatsApp group. And at the time, um, they had a few passports. So, so basically, when the embassy was looted, someone, some, a few people went into the embassy and they took passports. So not all the passports, but they took the passport that they, that they found. So basically, um, I was lucky that um, just, uh, I think it was on Friday, I was told that my passport was found and they took a picture and then an acquaintance went and picked up my passport. Uh, and I was just, um, I just, I really could not believe it because uh, other people are still struggling to find their passports. And of course, others have had their passport shredded. So um, yeah, it was not, it was not an easy experience. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a crazy story. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you were able to get your passport back uh, among so many people who, who've had their documents destroyed. Um, let's go back a bit to, to last month. Were you surprised when the, when the fighting broke out? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I saw the war coming. I saw the war coming for the last four years. But then you're still taken back when it happens. Um, and, uh, so I, I, but then when, when things escalated and there was the Meadowy situation, I knew that there was a chance that this could happen, but I expected it to first happen in Meadowy. And like, I just didn't expect it to unfold this way, basically, but I was not surprised. No. And what was life like in Khartoum after the, the fighting broke out? Um, the, the, the struggle to survive, to stay out of the fighting, to not find yourself at the hands of, you know, all these men with guns. Can you just talk about what that was like before you left the city? So um, so it was not easy. The first, of course, we just didn't leave our house for the first few days. We were just trying to, you know, find out the news. I think in our situation, um, initially, Khartoum East was not as bad as, for example, you know, the the areas close to the airport, Khartoum 2, Amarat, and so on. And then at the same time, it was just kind of trying to figure out what's happening with the rest of our families. Some of them were living in very dangerous areas. They had to leave. We, we were very scared, very worried about them. And then also, um, you know, just everything just broke down. So, for example... 
uh, a lot of people, and still this is the case, that a lot of people in my family, for example, don't have jobs anymore, you know? So also, you know, you ha- you, you have to, like, my sister and I, we have to take care of some of them because it's just a situation where no one really has a job anymore and they're not going to have a job soon. So everything just kind of changed, you know, in the in the first few days of the conflict. We went a few times to get like groceries and it was not um, it was not the best thing. You know, you see our men on the streets, you see we saw like RSF men, you know, in our on near like our house. And you would just really it's very scary because you don't know what they would do, you know, uh, like their reactions are just very different. So we were you're I was just always expecting the worst. And did the fighting ever reach your area? Um, so close to my area, yes. So basically the first day, actually, I, I woke up because of the fighting. So I woke up and I just heard like gunshots and I was, I just, I had no idea what's happening. And then it was not as much. So you would hear it every now and then, but then it depends what they're doing. Like for, so for example, a few days into the conflict, they bombed this building that's very near our house. And then the whole house shook, you know, I have not experienced that ever. But the thing is, you know, um, you know how they say if you don't hear it, uh, it's the one that's going to hit you. <laughs> so if you hear the fighting, then it's just not going to come to your house. So we were just um, um, we, we, we believe that my room is the safest because we have a building in front of it. Like it has one window, just a small window. And then there is a big building that's blocking this, this window. So we figured out that it's, it's the safest room. So we would all kind of we changed our sleeping arrangement. So we would all kind of sleep in my room. And w- once you did decide to to leave the city, w- what was it like in the other parts of the country that you passed through amid this terrible war in Khartoum? So when we, w- the day we left, we left with um, a friend and her father. Like there was a like a minivan of like people, and we also we had no. We decided to drive, which was not uh, easy, an easy decision to make because at the time they were like looting cars, they would stop families and so on. And uh, so we made the decision to leave. And also um, when we made the decision to leave, initially we made the decision to leave to go to like Medani for like some time and then come back. So we literally did not take anything. So like I just took a few clothes, just a few books. So we, we got into the car and then the minivan was like near us. And then we, we we live very close to like the end of Street 60, which was good. So we just passed by like just there were like a number of RSF, uh, you know, trucks to our left. They were, I think, preparing to enter Khartoum or preparing something. So they we were not stopped at all. So we took the road. And I think um, once we left, we just felt that we were safe because we just didn't see, you know, RSF trucks anymore and it was just basically just you know civilians and then once we left it was really interesting but I saw um like men sitting at like um like a tea lady um on the street and I was absolutely petrified because I have not seen this in such a long time you know in a few weeks and I just didn't know that you know um I it just hit me that oh you know outside Khartoum in places people are just kind of they're able to to go out, you know, and not feel scared. And it was it was just crazy, you know. And the Sudanese you talked to outside Khartoum in the areas you traveled through, what, what did they say? You know, my friends who live, I have a very close friend in Medari and she would call me every day. She's like, you know, they were just very much shocked. They could not believe what was happening. 
they were just petrified, basically. So I think it was also a lot of pressure from, you know, different people and even family members who are living outside Khartoum and telling us that you have to get out, you know, it's sooner or later they will come to you. And I think this was really something that we were worried about. Um, because I think it's interesting, but like, if you, if they're going to lose you, you don't want to be in the house, you know, because, you know, you don't want to like, lose your life. And I think it, for many people also, it was, um, it was affecting them in different ways. Like, for example, there are people living in Medani or in other states and they're working with people in Khartoum or they're working in companies in Khartoum. So their, their livelihood completely stopped. So not every, not everyone was spared basically. And quickly, what, why do you think it is that the East in particular has managed to stay stable despite what's happening in Khartoum? Okay, I think it has to do with, like the RSF, they did manage to recruit from different places in Sudan. I mean, it is a fact. They, they recruited from the North, from Eastern Sudan, from different parts of Sudan. But I, but I think when, when the fighting broke out, it became, um, it became like a, an issue where different communities felt that this is not their fight. So I so this is why I felt that quickly uh, different uh, you know RSF uh, battalions or whatever you call them in different places just felt that this is not their fight you know this is a fight between you know Daglu and uh, and and the army you know and they just felt that they should take the side of the army and and eventually um, the people that are that continue to kind of fight and continue to be on the front lines are people that are very. I would say close to the family of like the the glue. And uh, Reem, what, what what has happened to your family house since you left? So um, so we have a house like where we live, and we have like um, like a building in another location where it's um, it's like it has um, part of my family lives there. Like my, my my uncle lives there, for example, and also there are offices and like apartments that are like rented. So um, my uh, we, we we basically pushed my uncle to leave a few days. Uh, ago and then just about two three days ago we found out that the RSF completely occupied our building and they even um they're even staying in the apartments that were that were even locked that no one really lived in so it's completely taken taken over by the RSF right now we don't know the extent of the damage whether there's also looting uh but our house we just keep checking and so far nothing has happened but uh, but I think I think like at some point you reach a point where you're just um, um, you're hoping for the best, you know, but you just feel that it could happen. So we have accepted this basically. And so the, the, there's this fighting in Khartoum, uh, but but then as you mentioned, there's this almost second part of the war this far, which which is the looting, the almost uh, sacking of the city of Khartoum. Um, can you describe that because? I think, you know, on the headline, everyone's focused on the fighting, but there's also at the same time almost this systematic destruction of of Sudan's capital, its its wealth, it, its cultural wealth. From the reports you've seen, just, just how widespread is it? Absolutely. I, it's definitely, there's a pattern. I feel that for people to think that it's just something that is happening, just like collateral damage, I don't think so. The, because factories, for example, in Khartoum North, they were looted. Okay, I mean, the looting, like, you could say that, you know, RSF had already basically broken prisons and they have released, like, thousands of prisoners who with a criminal record. So you could justify it. Not justify it, but you could try to understand why it's happening. But then the fact that they would loot and then they would, you know, basically dismantle the machinery and then they would burn down the factory, 
it's it is for me it is absolutely suspicious so basically there is a total destruction of infrastructure uh so to make sure that this country is unable to stand back on its feet anytime soon and we still don't know the end result but what we're seeing right now is destruction of factories uh they are looting all the markets so most of the markets in Khartoum have been looted and burned so so for the traders or businessmen they can't even start like they they have to start from like basically below zero so nothing everything is gone you know and the fact that they have also targeted businessmen in their houses so they have robbed and and, and there was this, this systematic pattern of them robbing businessmen and traders in their houses and taking everything they have and also like in sudan people the way they save it's they invest in real estate and they also save in gold and hard currency so all of this was gone but then also yeah the cultural infrastructure i mean um 10 years ago my family donated you know thousands of books basically to this uh, to Muhammad Omar Bashir uh, Center for Sudanese Studies at Omdurman Ahliya University i was uh, the center was burned down all the books are now gone and 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 this center has books that have a lot of value like old books and manuscripts and things that mean a lot you know to the to the to the people of this of the city to the people of this country this is our history basically so 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 what's happening is 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 just um uh like i i it's it's difficult to understand but we i just feel that it is very much um a pattern basically that it is very much systematic and what would you make of the argument that this is just a command and control issue with the RSF and that essentially communications have broken down and thus and thus they've been unable to to control this widespread pillaging of the city i mean i mean i mean we have seen the rsf in like other places in sudan you know this is really this is their their um, their motto this is how they operate you know like the looting the the sexual violence that we have seen in khartoum the destruction this is this is their like their mindset basically you know um and and of course there is a command and control problem i mean we we um because the rsf basically they have like officers and most of the officers were seconded from the army so they 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 basically left the rsf and and went back to their forces or whatever so so they definitely don't have a lot of uh, you know officers right now who are able to control the process who are able to give exact commands so right now we just have a lot of them spread out in different places and they're just kind of you know entering houses occupying them they they want to stay safe and you know they steal food to eat and they do all of that but i think it's also their mindset you know this is how they operate in different parts of uh, of sudan unfortunately and so you've had this this cultural destruction, like you you talked about with that heartbreaking story uh, of your family's book collection that was donated, and you know which is irrecoverable. Um, you've had this complete destruction, looting of a capital in terms of real estate um, and uh, wealth that's being destroyed. But you you also, I mean, there, there, there's something more though too. There's the, the there's the flight of Sudanese themselves. You know, I had I had a friend talk about just the the, the exodus from Khartoum of the intellectuals, the business people, the elite. You know, and and once these people start to leave, it can take a very long time, and it can be very hard to 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 get them back, especially given what's happened to what they've left behind. Among the people you know, how, how many are making the decision to to leave Khartoum, and how are they thinking about for those who are leaving? You know, when and if they might return. I mean, I think um, I think as um, I mean, I think to make the decision to leave, there are a few reasons. You know, uh, some people made the decision to leave not because their areas are particularly um, 
you know, insecure all the time, but also because they just, they have not seen power or water for days, you know? So I think people have different reasons to leave, but, but ultimately to leave, you have to have some kind of, um, like, I'm not going to say you have to be wealthy, but you have to have money basically, because it's not, because it's not easy unless you have family that can basically give you accommodation and that can provide you with like just basics. It's, it's not an easy decision to leave because rent is expensive uh, you have to basically buy everything from scratch, you know, so you're spending a lot of monies on like groceries and buying things for the house to make it a home. And, and this is how it is for families. So it's very expensive, you know, to leave. It's not an easy decision. If you don't have a house outside, if you don't have family that can support you and that can give you uh, a place to stay. Um, so I think this is why some people are just unable to leave. Basically, they can't make this decision. And also some people are just staying because they want to protect their house and, and business and so on. Um, so I think uh, in my in my in my group, a lot some people left, some people didn't. So I still know a lot of people that are there or actually the majority of my family is still in Khartoum. Um, I think this war is definitely going to change, um, you know, uh, a lot of things about Khartoum and Sudan. I think some people who have left and went to other states, they're not going to come back. Because they, because they saw that, you know, the other states, you could also make a living. And I know I have acquaintances who have started businesses already there, just small food businesses and so on. But they've started something that they felt that, you know, they could do while they're there. So I think you are going to see people going back to, to, to living with their, you know, families or living in their, you know, states of, of origin uh, because they just decided that they could do that right now. Um, I think also um, some people are going to leave Sudan altogether. I think because I think it's a very traumatic experience what happened, especially to some people. And I think some people are just going to be so traumatized. And also um, they have to start from zero because they lost everything. Right. So they have to if they have to start from zero, they can choose where to start from zero. Basically, the location where they can do that. So. Um, so I think this is definitely the ramifications. We have yet to see them, but this is how I see things unfolding. And something that, that, that we're unfortunately hearing more and more are people in the region, people internationally, Sudanese, pointing to some pretty grim examples, in, 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 including Somalia, you know, where there was this fighting in the capital itself. You, you had the destruction of Mogadishu, um, but but you also had this sort of mass exodus of the elite, especially, and and you know the the state in Somalia collapsed for, has collapsed for a very long period of time. Are are you worried that the Sudanese state itself is collapsing? I mean, to be honest, I don't think so. I mean, I understand that people try to use other examples to help them understand what could happen, but I feel that there's still hope. You know, I feel that if the conflict is does not become some kind of proxy war. And it just continues kind of unfolding the same way it is. I feel that there is still hope. So I think there's still a lot of internal factors that could really help the, the, stay, the state sorry, stay together. Def- definitely, this is not for the long term. I think the quicker it ends, the more possibility for Sudan to just kind of like continue existing as like, you know, one country with like a stable government and so on. So th- let's talk about some of these peace efforts and, and, and where things stand militarily. Uh, we're talking on Tuesday, uh, the ceasefire, the seven-day ceasefire that was recently brokered in Jeddah came into effect something like 12 hours ago. 
What have you heard from Sudan about how successful this latest ceasefire has been? There is no ceasefire. I was there during a number of ceasefires. There's there's just no ceasefire because because this is a kind of conflict where the two parties are going to fight it out until there's a winner. Okay. I mean, diplomatically, of course, the two sides have to, you know, appear that they're negotiating, that they are going to international meetings and that they are listening to the international community. But we all know that this is not going to happen because this is not the kind of conflict, you know, that's going to uh, like unfold in this direction. So until one of them loses militarily, then it's not it's just not going to stop. And, and do you see either side having gained any upper hand in Khartoum at all? A, a lot of reports are suggesting the the RSF controls mount most of the capital, but um, if they do, do you think that would mean that they're they're winning, or should we rather be looking at the the other advantages that the the that SAF has that the army has with with the air force, perhaps uh, more external backers they could look to? Um, how, how do you see the the lay of the land right now militarily? I think. Like RSF being kind of spread out across Khartoum does not mean that they are controlling. I think I think they are spread out because they don't really have bases anymore because they also don't really have like a, like a command that can give them you know specific direction. So being spread out for them gives them some kind of safety because they go inside neighborhoods and they hide from the from the military jets and so on. So, but I think they don't really have anything substantial that they control right now. But but the thing is, um, they're fighting and they're fighting hard because they know that once they leave Khartoum, that's it, you know, like they're done basically as a political and military uh, basically entity. And so we, we, we talked a lot about the RSF, but obviously we shouldn't just bypass the army and uh, and the role that it's playing in the destruction of the capital as well. How has the army's bombings, its own tactics, um, been affecting the, the residents of Khartoum as well? You know, what's really interesting is that, so the army, you know, obviously for a very long time, it has relied on the RSF as ground troops. So right now you have a situation where SAF doesn't really have a lot of ground troops. So basically it's, it's relying on the Air Force. So I think, um, I think some things could have basically needed ground troops and they were done in a way that they just bombed the places. And this caused, you know, a lot of, um, you know, damage to houses, to to different, you know, like businesses and infrastructure. So so as you mentioned, b- both sides still seem very intent on, on gaining an upper hand, um, especially the army is uh, resisting major peace talks, you know, until it can be in a better position to, to dictate better terms uh, against the RSF. But but how exactly does the army think it can turn the tide of this war given you know given what you said and what many have said about essentially their their lack of a strong ground force. So I think right now it's a situation where um we have seen kind of um like the past few days were just basically like there was um a deadlock. So you have a situation where the RSF is just kind of like in different residential places and then SAF is is not really like bombing as much, but then you do have a situation where like no one is really moving. I think SAF, they, they, they just they just believe that by cutting, uh, by, you know, they bomb their bases, they're cutting their uh, supplies, they're like, um, they're cutting their, their, their supply route into the, into the city, that eventually they will withdraw, basically. 
And we have seen in like in like um, in some neighborhoods in Omdurban, we have seen RSF kind of, uh, you know, um, leaving basically just all of a sudden in the past two days, as I've been told by family members. So it could be working, but then but then everyone is people are not really they're not thinking about time. Right. Because right now you have a population that is hungry, that is that has so many problems. So how long this is going to take? We, we still don't know. And what what is the humanitarian situation, f- from your understanding, for those still in Khartoum? It's terrible. I mean, I think I think um, you know you can't find medicine. People are struggling to find medicine. Um, very few hospitals are working. Um, people are hungry because um, you know because the war happened on the fifteenth of April, so they were not paid. You know their salary. There is some kind of like charity work happening, but then. It's not that big because um, because the ones who kind of spearhead this kind of work, like the middle class and the upper middle class, have also been affected because their businesses have been looted. Like there are some organizations that are working to to support displaced people in Jazeera and in other states in central Sudan. But in Khartoum, it's very difficult to, to get this kind of support into Khartoum. So it's a very bad humanitarian situation. It cannot go on. And like you said, the talks in Jeddah, they've produced a couple of agreements. Neither of them really seem to be affecting much on the ground at all. Um, and, they, and they only include the two warring parties. They're, they're, they're not political talks. They don't include any Sudanese civilians. What do you think the civil actors in Sudan, who've pretty much all rejected this, this war, um, but are not in the negotiating room themselves at this moment with these two, what, what should they be doing? I think we need a new political like coalition, and I think like you know my opinion on this, but I but I like other people feel that the FFC was too close to the RSF, you know, politically, and because and for this reason, I feel that it's it will be very difficult for them to be part of any like upcoming deal or political agreement. I don't think that they're a coalition that represents the, the interests of the people of Sudan anymore. It, it, it represents the interest of the RSF and their political ideology. So I think that we're just not going to see civilians in the picture and we're not going to see politicians in the picture unless we have a new political coalition with new people, not the same faces that were in the FFC, that were known to be in the FFC. A new political coalition that can really represent the opinion of the people right now, and that and that is not really siding with with one of the warring parties. And quickly, but but before we move off this point, what why exactly? Um, I I think this is puzzling to some who haven't been watching this closely, even to some who have been watching it closely. Why did the FFC leaders, these political party leaders, cozy up to Hemeti? In, in the months leading up to this conflict? Political parties in Sudan, they, they have, uh, they're very suspicious of the army in general. And rightly so, because they feel that the army, uh, you know, continues to take power from them. You know, they, there's a revolution and then they come to power and then the army takes power from them. And this has happened, you know, 1969, you know, uh, 1989 uh, and so on. So, so, so they basically feel that you know, the army cannot be trusted. The army just wants to lead the country, you know, uh, regardless. So, so this is why they feel that um, the army is not a party that they could, that they could trust. 
So the RSF for them is 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 a body that that um, you know it's new. I mean, it does have a you know some kind of human rights record, but the army as well has that. That and it's a it's a site that doesn't have a clear ideology, or because they feel that the army is still basically full of Islamists, you know, and they have a very big problem with Islamists, of course. And they also feel that like to 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 get in power, they need some kind of military protection, or to keep power, basically, they need some kind of military protection. So they need a force, basically, that helps them to like you know to stay in power and so on. So they saw RSF as as a vehicle that could help them, you know, get to power you know, be protected and kind of a vehicle that could stop the military from uh, taking over, you know, once again. Uh, so this is why we saw the FFC closing up to the RSF after 2019. And this was done uh, at um, at great risk to the FFC because, you know, part of the, the deal was to basically uh, like do some PR for the RSF. Uh, so yeah, so you have the situation where the FFC saw that the RSF could be a good partner for them when it comes to you know taking power and keeping power, and a good partner that could really kind of uh, you know disempower the, the 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 army. And this is why the the political agreement was basically uh, a big part of it was about like disempowering the army but empowering the RSF. And so, how do you see the path forward given given what you've sketched out? There's Obviously, a lot of different proposals floating about about how to maybe restart a civilian dialogue process, the the Sudanese political process. How do you get past where things ended, where you essentially have these FFC political leaders sort of driving the negotiation process with the military? It was a very cartoon-centered process as well. I'm wondering, do, do you see any hope or prospect of forging a process that would be more representative of Sudan um, outside of Khartoum as well? I mean, I still feel that, um, I mean, right now I understand people are very, you know, there's really no time. It's not safe for them to to meet and organize, whether it's in Khartoum and, um, and in other states, everyone is just kind of on hold, you know, waiting for what's going to unfold in Khartoum. But I feel that if some of the resistance committees that do have some kind of constituency in their neighborhoods, along with, you know, like apolitical or at least like, um, you know, independent trade unions, I feel that they could come together and form a political coalition that could attract attract a lot of communities and they could stand behind them. So I feel that the problem is right now, if you don't have this kind of, if you don't have civilians who are coming together and who are organizing and who are, you know, forming a political body, like we are going to enter a stage where they're just, they're no longer... I'm not going to say welcome, but they're no longer going to be part of any equation. So we're going to have a situation where it's going to be just the military taking over everything and for a long time. And it's going to be a full on military dictatorship. And right now, when you have this conflict situation, you already have people who are siding with the, not even siding with the military, but who see that the military could really, um, uh, you know, save them, you know, who are seeing them as saviors. So, so if this continue, and especially if you have some kind of win from one of the from one of the sides, uh, you're going to have a situation where it's going to be a full on military dictatorship, and and the community is not going to be uh, supportive of a political transition, if I may say, unless you have an organized body that is able to kind of lead the process right now. So I feel that also this is a very time-sensitive thing for it to happen, and it needs to happen quickly because we don't want to revert back to a military rule. 
Reem, thanks, thanks so much for, for finding the time to talk to us. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for listening. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell, and our producers are Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi.